0: This is The Resilient Life, where we believe that every human will struggle in this life. Our challenge is to struggle well. I'm Ryan Mannion. I lost my brother to war, my mom to cancer, and I'm the daughter of a retired Marine. I'm also a wife, mom, author, and president of one of the nation's leading veteran service organizations. Join me and some incredible guests as we explore the value of struggling well through life's inevitable challenges. Well, welcome to The Resilient Life.
1: Thank you, Ryan. It's good to be here. Yeah. I I feel home. I feel home. You know, I I feel like I'm here with my people, so it's all good. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I love it. Well, you know, I'm so glad to have you on. And I was thinking about, you know, we met last year. It was just about a year ago, 4th of July weekend. We do this warrior workout and you showed up on the beach in Avalon, New Jersey. And you know, in full minutes, I didn't know who you were, but our social media manager is a huge bachelor, bachelorette, uh, watcher. And it, she was like, oh my gosh, that's Zach Clark. And, you know, um, we started following each other on Instagram yeah. and, you know, I learned more about the things that you're doing. And, um, I'm just in awe of like the path that you've overcome. And, you know, I was excited to have you on and be able to talk more about that. But I think there's a lot of synergies between us. Yep. Um, our shared love of Philly sports being probably first and foremost. That's a trauma in
1: itself. We, we could probably do a whole hour on that. Just uh, the resilience there. It takes, it takes a lot to be a Philly sports fan, but we'll get one soon. Hopefully. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, it's funny because my son is eight years old and this is like the first year that he's really gotten into like Philadelphia sports. Right. So it started last year with the Phillies and, He went to bed the night they lost, like, crying. And I was like, oh, poor little guy. Yeah. And, you know, I was like, poor little guy. Like, there he goes. He's off to bed. And, you know, he watched that run. And then come the Eagles. We have season tickets. And who would have thought, right? Right. And so I was there with him, standing next to him at the NFC Championship game. And it was, like, the coolest moment to watch this little eight-year-old boy, like, Just see that. And I mean, my husband went to the Super Bowl last time they played and he was like, the NFC championship game is by far even greater, you know? And so, but then Super Bowl night comes, we're standing right down here. We're in the family room. We've got, you know, 50 people in the house and off he went to bed crying himself to sleep. And then, uh... He didn't take it as hard with the Sixers. I think he kind of, you yeah, know. We all knew. Yeah. And
1: we all know. We're being we're being honest here. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know that. You know. We'll see.
0: But you know, there is something about Philly sports that, um, and you know, wherever I go, I travel a lot, and I'm, you know, you do as well. But right away, people like they they pick up on it. I don't realize how um, thick my Philly accent is, but right away, they're like, "Oh, you're from Philly," right. you know? So, right. which um, is like.
1: I've been in New York for 10 years now and I still, uh, the waitress will be like, anything drinking a water? And she's like, a what? I'm like, a water, you know, is that what you want me to say? So it's like, I love it. It's our people though. And we are, we're a resilient bunch. Yeah. You know?
0: So, you know, I'd love to kind of start from, I learned a little bit more about your story um, and knew that, you know, everything you were doing with the Release Recovery Foundation, but I didn't realize that all stemmed from, You know, kind of a traumatic event when you were in your early 20s. So you're diagnosed with a brain tumor. Yeah. Are you in college at the time?
1: So I just, so I was a year out of college Uh and kind of just like kicking the can down the street. Uh, You know, first job working out in Concha and have a little girlfriend and like building this, what I thought would be the suburban life that I would just live for forever. Yeah. Right. And, it was actually this weekend. It was crazy. I'm getting chills saying it, but it was Memorial Day weekend. I was packing the car to go to the Jersey Shore. Of course. With all the buddies from college. We had a house, like a share house, for the weekend, and we were going to go party. And I was partying a lot of the time. And and the, the the couple weeks leading up to it, I just was not feeling good, right? And my family, because they knew I liked to party, was like, "You're just hungover. You're just you got to knock it off. You got to cut the shit." And I'm like, yeah. "Nah, this is different." And so I took it on myself on that Friday, like this Friday of Memorial Day, and uh, went into this little x-ray place, like on the side of the road and said, like, something's not right. I think I want to get checked out.
0: Were you having headaches?
1: It's like, head, but the best way I describe it is when I would close my eyes, I would see like almost a kaleidoscope. Uh Nuts. And I was really out of bounds. So it wasn't so much headaches. It was just, I wasn't myself. Yeah. And she came in, like, I don't know what they do there, but she came in white as a ghost. Like she had never, you know, like she probably does a thousand of these and nothing ever shows up. And she's like, you need to stay right there. Like, we got to get you to a hospital. And I just remember in that moment, I was like, what is going on? She's not going to tell me much. Right. And within 24 hours, I'm at University of Penn Hospital getting operated on. It's crazy. Yeah. Really crazy. That's wild. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, so. It's non-cancerous. You get the tumor removed. Mm -hmm. And what happens next? So this
1: is like the first time in my life when I kind of tell my story where I start to realize that something is different about me. Yeah. And because i'm in this hospital bed i'm in there for 21 days i'm never alone like i have so much love you were in the hospital for 20 days yeah. after the surgery yeah wow. i mean i was learning to like walk talk like the whole thing occupational therapy i mean i was i was pretty messed up and i was never alone like family friends whatever bringing me soft pretzels bringing me the water i was doing the whole thing and i just felt dead like i should have been excited like i have this new lease on life right And the other thing that was happening is this nurse was giving me meds like every four hours. And i was like, this is awesome. You know, like I really, I feel good. Like I just got this thing cut out of my head and it didn't really make sense. And so the feelings associated were really confusing and I didn't know what to do with them. And there wasn't like a mental health professional coming in and talking to me. So I was like taking on all of this crazy life experience and didn't really have anyone to talk about.
0: And you're like following the protocol of of what you know, the, the, and I want to talk about that more, but I'll let you finish. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no. And so, so like I got out of the hospital and I started to like kind of slowly go back to work and everyone in my life was like, Zach, you're such a hero. This is like going to change your life. You've got to be so excited. And inside I just, I, I felt dead, you know, and the only thing that was making me happy were the drugs it was crazy. And so at that moment is when I probably got hooked Yeah, and I didn't even realize it. I didn't even realize it. I mean, I was partying. I mean, of course, high school, college, bong hits, drinking the whole thing. But like, this was the first moment where I was like, Oh my God, I'm really, this is my favorite thing to do. Yeah. Get high.
0: Well, you know, I, I, so I I have three kids, three C-sections. So there's a, there's a lot of meds that are involved with that. And I remember when I gave birth to my, my oldest, um, I was terrified to have a C-section. Like I was fighting the doctors like, no, let me try. Like, you know, I do not cut me open. You know, it ended up happening. And right away, you know, once they take you off the intravenous, they're like popping Percocets, right? And I was so terrified of the pain that, you know, when they came in and I wasn't really feeling any pain, that's right. the thing. But they were like, all right, you're ready for your next dose. And then they send you home with a huge bottle of perks. And they're like every four hours, you know, and I'm like, okay. And I stuck to that regimen. And like, I didn't even allow myself to see. And I remember my dad saying to me, like, do you have to be taking those? And I'm like, well, yeah, that's they're prescribed. I have to, you know, I have to take them every four hours. And it was the second night I was home. I woke up in the middle of the night and I was calling out for the nurse to give me my pain meds. Yeah. And my husband's like, you're done. Let's try Motrin. And, you know, cause he was like, you're, and, and I woke up that morning and he literally was like, you didn't take your Percocets last night. Like I didn't give them to you. How do you feel right now? And I didn't feel any pain. Like the pain was gone, but it was just, I was in that place that number one, I was scared to experience that pain. But number two, like I was starting to appreciate how those Percocets were making me feel.
1: How how old your... This is your youngest. So how's you? your?
0: This was my oldest. She's six. She's sixteen. Okay. Yeah.
1: So this is like the opiate epidemic is had not it? begun right. yet.
0: But interestingly <laughs> enough, like I, I had surgery just two years ago, and they sent me home with a big bottle of oxy. and and again, like I was more scared to take them than I was scared to feel the pain. Right. And so it's this like weird, you know, phenomenon of like you you know, like, and there are people, I have an addictive personality. I know that. Like, I have an addictive personality. Yeah. And so (laughs) for me, it's, you know, I get it. Like, it is so easy. I have a friend from high school who was a D1 soccer player. He tore his knee up, went in for surgery and died by overdosing on Oxy three years later. Like, you know, I mean, it's it's real. It's real.
1: It's real. And, it's tough because there is a place in the world for pain meds, right? Yeah. There are people that need it. And that's some like every once in a while, I'll have someone come out of the woodworks. It's kind of yelling at me. You don't know, like you can't be down talking opiate. Like they saved my life. And I, and I get that. And yeah. doctors, I think the truth is are so busy that they prescribe these meds. And then they don't take the five to 10 minutes to sit someone down who might not have any knowledge of addiction or, Substance use disorder, or how easy it is to get hooked on this stuff, and explain to the patient, okay, this is what I'm putting you on. This is why I'm putting you on it. And the second you start to feel better, like just get rid of the pills. Which it yeah. sounds like you had a good support system and were yeah. able to do it. But for me, like I was, I was off to the races. I just loved it. Yeah. You know?
0: And so, when did you like recognize like this is a problem?
1: I mean, I don't, I don't think well, I was the I don't, first
0: one to recognize it, or was somebody else?
1: So I was married. So so I got out of the hospital. I went back to work. And then shortly thereafter, I was like, okay, I need to like get engaged and married because this woman is like kind of staying by my side. And it just felt like the next right thing to do. Yeah. I don't know that I ever stopped to think about the ways that these drugs were controlling my life and how they had a hold of me. And so it wasn't until I really ended up in rehab the first time that I that I recognized that I really had an issue because I always liked to party. I always liked to have fun. And this was just another thing that I added to the mix. And, and, and ultimately it got to a point where I was needing the meds to get out of bed. And I mean, I was a horrible drug addict. <laughs> I always tell people like I could have went to a doctor cause doctor shopping at the time was a thing. Like yeah. you could still go to doctor, show an x-ray. They'd write you a script. Oh, I have a little pain in my neck, but I went right to the black market because I wanted it to be my secret, you know? So it started to come out a little bit with my, you know, fiance and, and soon to be wife, because the bank account started to dwindle. And I was like, oh, the car broke, you know, and I was taking out cash. Said, Where's all this money going? So it's just that that was the beginning of just a really gnarly couple of years, which um, I'm grateful for. Right. Like we we talk about it, like our experience is our greatest teacher. And yeah. Um,
0: now, were you still, you know, I think one of the other misconceptions about people that, you know, have substance abuse problems is like if they're still functioning oh, right and s- level. right and so you know y- you hear these stories of like uh, you know functioning alcoholics right like you don't know that they're drinking a fifth of vodka to get through the day but they're they're getting through the day and you know if you look from the outside they look like they're thriving they're they're accomplished they're you know getting their shit done and and all of that and so that can I think be a big mask for people because when you think of the the drug addict right you think of the the guys and girls down on Kensington Avenue right and there's like well they need help right and so I think it's probably hard to recognize that it has to be internal to you to say like I oh, shit I got a problem
1: I will say the world in my eyes is starting to catch up and that's a big part of what I try to do is show people that I'm almost 12 years sober and this is my life. It's so much better than any life that would run by drugs and alcohol. I was absolutely functioning at the highest level. Uh, it's funny, I was with a buddy last night who lives out this way, this kid, Timmy Brooks, who, who works in the field and has an amazing story as well. And we were kind of talking about our stories and I was talking about the end of my run just to paint the picture. I'm working in a corporate environment Uh, for my dad. And I don't know if he hears this, he's probably going to have a heart attack. But anyway, I'm working for him and like managing a team, working in HR, ironically, like hiring, like doing all the corporate recruiting, hiring people, bringing like interviewing C-level executives, like really functioning at a high level. And at the end of the day, when everyone would leave, I would take a shirt or a towel, put it under my, my door and I would smoke crack in, in the office. So you talk about like a guy in a suit, had new jersey or south jersey that like never wanted for anything at the end of the day i'm sitting there like throwing a crack rock in this pipe and like smoke and and it's just the 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 craziness that ensues and you were looking
0: forward to that all day all day yeah
1: well i mean i found my ways during the day yeah but that was the
0: the mecca of your day was that moment
1: and like crack is not a smell that like it's not a weed, like it's a very distinct and and no one ever knew neither. I never got caught because we, we we do what we do and we're pretty we're pretty good at it. So it's insane. It's insane. So, yes, highly functioning. And and, and the reality is and I, and I and in my work, I talk to a lot of men and women who, you know, get addicted, whether it's to the pills or the Adderall or whatever, even even weed sometimes. And they'll tell you that, initially when you start to do these drugs, you're actually more productive because the dopamine in your brain is kind of firing and you kind of zone in. And then that you build up this tolerance and that starts to wear away. And then you become dependent. Yeah. And it doesn't have the same effect. Like it's not your medicine anymore. It's just, you need it to survive. Right. So crazy. So
0: how many times did you go to rehab before it stuck?
1: Twice. Twice. So I went in... So I got married in 2009, did the whole like Cape May, Congress Hall wedding. I think I've three, been, to,
0: been to a many Congress Hall wedding. And I think
1: there was probably like three of my friends that got DUIs that like, it was just like, insane. We I was the first, I got married at 25. So it was like the first, yeah, it was the first, we, <laughs> you made it, I didn't, um, <laughs> I'm divorced now, but anyway, she's a, she's a sweetheart. She's an angel. So I got married and then. By 2000. So by like Thanksgiving of 2010, I was in rehab for the first time. Um, And I wasn't ready. Right. So I went and I, I was kind of like forced into it. And I was really scared. I wasn't able to communicate that I knew like
0: you were forced into rehab.
1: Well, in the sense that like I was, I I got found out. Yeah. Like my mom, my parents found out, my wife found out and they basically said, you got to go, you got to get some help. And and so I did. And it wasn't the world we're living in today. So treatment wasn't as widely accepted as it is today. It wasn't looked at as this like act of strength. It was a really, there was a lot of shame and stigma around it. So Mm -hmm. I'm sitting there in this treatment center, like hating myself. And I was high within like two weeks of getting out of there.
0: Yeah. So when you, I, I think about that, like when you think about when people talk about addicts, they're like, well, they have to, you know, they have to be willing to make the change. Right. And so they have to be willing to accept that they want to get clean. They want to get sober. Um, But I think about like, from a parent's perspective, like, you know, we're just going to sit around and wait for our kid to say, okay, now it's time. Right. Right. So I get that level of kind of like forcing, right. And saying like, you have to, but you know, I just think about what that means for, for the person that's going through it. I think a lot of people probably enter rehab for the first time thinking, how quickly can I get out of here? Of course. Yeah. And I
1: look, I I've studied some of the numbers around that. There isn't a whole lot of evidence that suggests someone who goes into treatment super willing is going to have a better outcome than someone like me that first time who wasn't necessarily ready. Yeah, uh, There's a lot of factors that play into it. And sometimes in treatment, you have that shift. The other thing that I'm really focused on right now is that to your point around parents and family, mothers, uh, family members, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, whatever it is, a lot of times the family member will get their loved one in the treatment. They're kind of like, okay, I'm done but for them it's a family kind of disease or illness. And so that's actually when they need to start to do the work too, mm-hmm. because if they don't change, right. The, the identified patient like myself has a, has a lower chance of changing because I, I'm just going to go right back into the same environment and the same cycle and, and feel very comfortable with it. So it's tough. I mean, it's not, I mean, you look at, you just look at the world today. I mean, the suicide numbers and the and the overdose numbers are through the roof and, we don't really have a great answer for it. We just don't.
0: So did you feel differently that second time you went in? Did you like...
1: So, I mean, the story goes, like I got out of treatment late 2010. I went back home. I was kind of like hanging out, doing some of the things that they told me to do. And I woke up on a Wednesday morning or whatever it was and had this thought, like maybe it'd be a good idea to go have a cocktail. Mm -hmm just out of nowhere, this like thought came into my head. And so I did that. I went to the liquor store, I drank a flask of vodka and within a half hour, and I had never done heroin at the time within a half hour, I'm driving into Camden because I like had done some research and like figured some stuff out and buying heroin for the first time. And so I bought the drugs, didn't do them, went home that night, was waiting for my wife to go to bed. And this is kind of like one of my God moments. I, I let her go to bed, kissed her good night, like said, okay, I'll see you in the morning. Went and got the drugs out of the car and she heard the car beeper. She heard the tee tee. I was in the living room, like I don't know what I was thinking, with a line of heroin on the table. And she can't comes down. She's like, What are you doing? And I broke down in that moment. And to her credit, she was done. Right. So she really kept that like boundary. And and she was, she was loving about it. She said, Zach, I want you to do well. I want you to be healthy. I want you to be happy, but I can't continue to do this. Like I can't. And the next day her dad came down and I, I was basically, I was out, I was out. And so then from that moment, so that was probably like January of 2011 until August of 2011, you know, it just progressed pretty rapidly for me where I started to just, do harder drugs, like hang out in the streets a little bit more, but still working, still showing face, still showing up the family. Do your parents know whatever. that
0: you're, that you've relapsed or is it just. Yeah. No, yeah.
1: everyone. I mean, yeah, every, everyone, knew. I had yeah. to move back home with them. Okay. So okay. then like what happens is my dad is kind of overseeing my care in some bizarre sick way. And my mom is in Florida at their house down there. Cause she doesn't want anything to do with it. Yeah. And so full of shit. Right. And scared and scared because I didn't really know. What was going to happen and i'll never forget we were at the jersey shore late august and it was um i i iris or i one of the tropical storms was uh-huh. coming through and i was running out of drugs so i, was like, I, I gotta get out of here so i left the shore house and i and i drove back up to south jersey to camden and cop drugs and pulled over on the side of the road and was basically having a surprise party for one and the cops came they arrested me and that was one of the that was one of the scariest nights of my life because I'm in this jail cell in Pennsac, New Jersey. They're telling me, like, do you want your phone call? I said, No, I don't have anyone to call. I don't want to yeah. tell anyone about this. Right. So they let me out the next morning because they can't. I mean, They're gonna do yeah, what are they yeah. gonna do? Like, I'll go to court eventually. And I walked from the Penn jail station into back into Camden. And I stayed there for three or four days, sleeping on the street, kind of like running around. Not because I didn't have a home. I could have called anyone. Anyone would have taken me, right. in, but, but you I was just yeah. off to the races. And, and by the grace of God, I, and I still get chills when I tell this story. It was a Saturday morning. My dad had come home. He went to the office. I was at the bank in Camden. I had stolen one of his checks and I was trying to forge it to get more money. I had two drug dealers waiting outside the bank and the bank teller Rhonda Jackson who I've uh, like she's an angel in my life I I know her so you know so like still in touch with her she knew something was up so she called the number they had on file for my dad which was the office number and he happened to be in the office picked up an unknown number and was about 20 minutes away and she kept me there long enough that he got there that he got there and he came through again white as a ghost put his arm on my arm and said son we're going home and uh I didn't know home was rehab, but walked out with my dad by the two drug dealers <laughs> kind of sitting there like, what's going on? Because we were going to go, you know, get in trouble. And, you know, on August 30th of uh, 2011, I checked into a treatment center out here in Pennsylvania, care and treatment centers, and I stayed for four months. And this is where like the resilience and the courage and the strength starts to, Really come into play because I was at this moment in my life where I looked in the mirror and I hated the person that I saw. Yeah. I just hated him. I just like, and I I get choked up talking about it because it's like I was so alone. I felt so misunderstood. I knew I wasn't a bad person. I actually knew I was a really good person because I had a lot of love in my life. Yeah. But I just couldn't figure it out. And I had played sports. I mean, I had figured everything out in life up to that moment. With this, I had like met my match. And um I did the work and I, I, there was a moment where I just, I let go. I said, I don't know anything about this. I'm surrendering. I like to think I know a lot about a lot of things, but this thing has me it's kicking my ass. Yeah. And, uh, it came time to decide what I was going to do next after, after treatment. I was like, right, I can't go to South Jersey. It's not healthy for me. And, uh, they had like talked about maybe DC cause my brother lived down in Virginia, uh, with, with his family. And the counselor said, what about New York? I was like, I hate New York. New York. I hate the sports teams. And so like whatever happened. And I just, I had this shift and I said, you know what? Let's look into it. And I moved to New York in early 2012. And I've been there ever since. And I've built, so I showed up in New York City knowing zero people. Like no one. And I've built a life there that I'm really fucking proud of, you know? And that was just, uh... so when I share my story, I always talk about like, the thing that was gonna kill me, it was going to kill me. Without like, if I was doing drugs in today's market, like or environment, I'd be dead with the fentanyl that's out there. I'd, right. just, I'd be dead. The thing that was gonna kill me has become my greatest asset. Life, it's the thing I'm most proud of. And there's a lot of bullshit out there around substance use disorder, or being an addict, or whatever it is. And I'm proud of it because it's it's made me who I am today. It's amazing. Yeah.
0: Obviously, you felt way different when you came out of rehab the second time.
1: I felt way different. Like most things in life, I think we want things when we want them. Yeah. Right. So I wanted to I wanted everyone to be calling me and saying how and they weren't because I had hurt so many people along the way. And I disconnected from the people that met the most to me in life. And I and I came to this realization that unless I really. Did the work, like talk is cheap, right? We know that. Unless I really did the work and I really changed, those relationships were going to be gone forever. And so, the hard thing as a as a man, right, or as someone who prides himself on being tough and resilient and having courage and strong, this whole idea of like I have to learn to love myself again, but that that feels weak. Yeah. But it was the best thing I ever did. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been, you know, like my last 11, well, I mean, it's just been, it's been such a, an amazing, and I'm so grateful, right? Like, I'm so great. I'm so blessed. I, I I know that today.
0: So you go from almost losing your life on the streets in Camden to moving to New York and then you know, you, do you immediately start the release recovery foundation or what are you doing when you get to New York?
1: Right. So, so the foundation came, so the foundation is our 501. So yeah. I started that in 2019. I, st- I knew when I came out of treatment that I wanted to like help people. Yeah. I love people and I love business. And I met some guys a couple months into being in New York that were starting a company very similar to release. Mm-hmm. So I hitched on with them and just learned everything that I possibly could. Like just grinded really through my life at at behavioral healthcare work. I I was a sponge. I took everything in that I possibly could, and uh, I worked there for five, just under five years. So from basically like 2012 to late 16. And then like we like I went I was like okay I'm I'm good like I'm going to go out on my own I'm going to I'm going to do my own thing and so I left that company and started release recovery which is my livelihood today so that's like our for-profit entity which we operate 64 kind of highly structured high-end sober living transitional living beds throughout New York City and Westchester County and then we do a lot of consultation work so interventions and and, and case management we have I'm not a clinician, but I have clinicians. I have a chief medical officer. So we have the the right team around, around us. Uh, and in 19, I kind of had this thought that, okay, the work I do is great, feels good, but I'm helping people that can afford these services, which didn't feel great. I mean, everyone needs a place, right? This thing doesn't discriminate. But that's when I said, OK, we need to cast a wider net. So that's when we started the foundation and started to raise money to scholarship people, not for our programs, but for uh, behavioral health care services that couldn't afford it. Right. Yeah. So mental health and, and substance use disorder. And it's been a crazy ride.
0: Well, I think since. what you also do is bring through your foundation, you bring a lot of awareness. Right. I try. Yeah. So I think that in itself is, is a big deal. When you think about, so you're 12 years sober? Is that- August,
1: hopefully. Yeah, I'll get there. Yeah. I'll get there. But You'll yeah, get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: But do you think about it every day?
1: So that's the thing that's that's funny, right? I don't know how much weight my story carries. I don't know. I'm very loose with my story. So even if I'm on a date with a girl, you know, and she's like, My my whole life is this shit. So what am I gonna do? Like beat around the bush? i like, right. no, I'm in kind of fucking I don't drink, you yeah. know, but we're gonna have fun. Yeah. I'm gonna show you that guys like me are actually better because like we know what we did last night, we're gonna show up, we're gonna be on time, like we're gonna do the things that I, I hope a partner like craves and desires in this yeah. existence and And so I don't like, I don't, it's not this daily struggle. It's not this thing where I wake up or I'm, I can't go to this bar. I can't. And that's a huge thing for me in the work I do is teaching people in early recovery that this life is, is not a punishment. It is actually a gift. If you, if you commit to it, right. It's like anything else in life. So I don't, I think there's people that do like, if people don't do the work or they, they've had a different experience. Yeah. There's people that probably wake up and want to get high every day, but. There's because
0: that has to be a struggle, right? To like to, you know, you hear of these stories where people are 12 years sober and then they relapse. And I think a lot of that comes with that. They haven't kind of they've maybe used sheer will and determination to get through those 12 years, but maybe they haven't really processed what it is to live a sober life. Right. And they're not doing the work, as you say. Right. And they're just battling through each and every day
1: it's yes and it's one of the things that we work really hard to show people that this life is actually kind of sexy it's actually you know once people get a little inkling they're like this is intriguing tell me more you know they want they want to know uh and it's it's been crazy for me because i as you mentioned at the offset like i i made this decision in the middle of covid to my sister and mom submit my application to go on the show i'm like I am going to do it. Like, I mean, whatever, when the, like the world's shut down, why yeah. not? Right. So I, so I do it knowing nothing about what I'm going, getting into and show aside, I come out of that. And all of a sudden people kind of know who I am just to a certain degree, if you watch the show or or whatever, social media. And what the world has told me as a result of that experience is I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, I was, uh, I mean, this is the heaviest last Saturday. I was volunteering at the Brooklyn half marathon. And I'm like gonna cry telling the story. And our teams out there were like serving Gatorade to people at mile eight. So like about the halfway mark and, and people were coming and people asked for pictures with me, you know, they're noticing, oh, oh, hi. And, and, and there's this guy that comes along and I hand him a cup of Gatorade and takes about five steps. And he turns back around to me and he looks at me and he goes, I'm sober because of you. I said, what are you talking about? And takes off. It goes. And and, and I'm like, what just, ha-? I look at the people that I was with, like, what just happened? What does that mean? Like, And he went on to write me a DM and he's basically like, Um, you know, I got sober in April, and it's because my wife knew you and turned me on to you, and I started following your story, and I realized that there's an easier way to live. And he's like, I'm so grateful for you. So we never know the impact that we're gonna have, right? Like on this podcast, if one person listens, we we did our job.
0: That's right. That's awesome. I used to say that so we we go into schools, right? We do a lot of work with. And so we train veterans to deliver character education uh, to kids across the country. But it started by me. I went into Travis's high school. They asked me to come. Ready, and Travis? He went to LaSalle. Okay. So he went to LaSalle High School, right, in Winmore. Yep. And after he died, it was 2009. They were like, hey, will you come talk to oh. the the kids at Salle and share Travis's story? And I had not never done any public speaking. And I'm like, all right, yeah. So I wrote a speech and, you know, I had a 15 minute speech. I could not deviate one word or I would have screwed the whole thing up. And I went in, I read my speech, but I, I wanted to talk about more than just like Travis, right? Like it was important for those kids to relate to him because he walked the halls of the school. But also I wanted to talk to them about like, there are other men and women who wore a nation's uniform that did come home. And I wanted them to be able to see themselves in that light too. And afterwards, the principal at the school was like, hey, this is like a message that I think transcends beyond just LaSalle. Are you interested in speaking at other schools? And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. He's like, well, I'm going to call other Catholic League schools in the Philadelphia area. I'm like, sign me up. So I started speaking like every day I was at a different high school. Then the Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia school district caught on and were like, we want you to come deliver this to the Philadelphia School District. My first school that I went into was Strawberry Mansion High School. I walked in, I had a armed guard who walked me in through the metal detectors. I was freaking out because prior to that, I had literally been in like private prep schools, right? So, and, and now I'm walking in here, there's like, I'm walking down, getting cat called as I'm walking down the hallway. You know, the teachers turn in like, shut the hell up. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like there, are they even going to understand this message? I got in, I start talking student wide assembly. There are kids literally throwing paper, yelling the whole time, like getting interrupted. The teachers are like yelling at the kids to shut up. And there was a moment in my talk where, you know, when it hits, when I'm just like, and my brother was killed in Iraq and, you know, they all kind of stopped. Right. Because I think as, as as unruly as some of them were, like they weren't like super disrespectful. They, and so I continued sharing the story. And afterwards, they did a little luncheon with a group of kids. It was about 12 of them. And there was one kid in there. And listen, I don't know if any of those kids, they were quiet. I don't know if they were listening, right. but, you know, I got through it. And I went into this little luncheon and there was this kid there. And he started telling me that, you know, nobody in his family had ever gone to college. and you know, listening to my story, he, he wanted to go to college and he wanted to do more within his life. And, you know, just kind of telling me where he had grown up. Like he didn't have a dad, you know, his dad had been killed, gang violence. And I remember walking out of there and feeling like, I feel like I touched one kid. And I say that all the time to our veteran mentors. I'm like, every audience you're going to get is going to be very different. But if you can walk out, like touching the life of one kid, like, like you said, you did your job, you know? And so I can so relate to that. Juice. Yeah.
1: That's the juice. And the thing about, I mean, I recently went back to a place where I went to high school. And the thing that I've realized about speaking, which I'm sure you can relate to, is can't bullshit these kids. No like you just you you can't do it. They're yeah. going to eat you alive if you go in there with some weak shit. Yeah. Right? Like they are. So yeah. for for people like me and you who have these stories of tragedy followed by hope. Uh they respond to that because at the end of the day like kids respond to to stories of hope. They want to know that everything's going to be okay.
0: Yeah. And I think you know the other thing during that speech that I gave, I wanted to give different examples, not just examples of Travis. Right. So I was trying to think of like the greatest example of leadership. I was like, well, there's no greater story than George Washington. Like <laughs> his greatest act of leadership is that he stepped back and said, asked others to lead, right? He went, retired back to Mount Vernon. And so it was like my example of like, you don't need a title or a position to be a leader, you know? So I tell the kids that story. And I said to the principal, after he talked to me, I said, hey, get some feedback. I want to know what the kids thought at LaSalle. And a few days later, he called me. He's like, listen, they could have listened to you talk about Travis all day, your relationship with him, growing up with him, you know, what he did on the battlefield. I was like, awesome. I'm like, is there anything that they, anything they didn't respond to? He's like, yeah, they didn't love that George Washington story. And, you know, it was like that realization for me that they want The Zach's in the room sharing their story. Like they can see themselves in your shoes. And so that was kind of the impetus for us to say, like, hey, I don't have to do this alone. I don't have to go out and share my brother's story. We've got thousands of men and women who have worn our nation's uniform that can come back and share their stories. And so that's what they do today. And that's a big part that we push out through our community is share your story because your story is so incredibly valuable. And are
1: most of these veterans that you're working open to doing that, or is that something that you have to?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, there are veterans that come into our organization and that's not, that's not what hits them. And, you know, they want to run a marathon with us or they want to, you know, do service projects with us or go through leadership courses and, you know, but we try to get them to that place because we know how incredibly valuable that is for their own mental health. Right. And, you know, when you look at today, you look at the suicide epidemic that's happening. I mean, the Surgeon General just two weeks ago called loneliness an epidemic. Yeah. Like loneliness is now an epidemic in our country. Disconnectedness. And so that is very true for the military community. When they take off the uniform, they go back and try to come into civilian communities. They feel very disconnected. You know, imagine going through that. And, and I'm sure you probably felt some of that when you are coming out of rehab, a little bit of like, today. yeah, like nobody knows what I, what I went through. Right. Like what I dealt with, you know, I mean, I'm sitting here with you. I can't imagine you like spending three days on the streets in Camden, right. you know? And so like, it's, it's that realization that they kind of sometimes can, that's where they, they start to get lonely. They start to close in, they start to no longer feel a sense of purpose. And we work, every single day to give them back that sense of purpose that they felt while serving in the military. And, you know, the biggest thing that if you ask men and women who serve like what they miss, it's they miss being a part of something bigger than themselves. So, you know, we want to give that back to them. What better way to do that than to mentor our next generation, you know, and teach them that they can kind of overcome obstacles in their life.
1: So crazy. And, and, I I agree. I relate. I think it's funny. I was on another podcast, I don't know, a month ago or so. And they asked, they were doing these rapid fire questions and they said, what's the thing that's most misunderstood about you? And I paused and I said, great question. And I, my answer was, I think that I'm lonelier than people recognize because on social media and pushing it out to the world like oh dude this guy's got an amazing life and i do yeah. don't get me wrong right. like i am a happy satisfied customer if i leave this planet tomorrow i'm going up with peace signs in the air like it's been a good ride but there are moments on friday night in new york city where i'm like what "Am i actually doing so e- even the highest achievers the people that serve our country the people that are out front someone like you that's leading an organization that is literally giving people purpose, we can ask for help. Right. Like we we need to ask for help. We need to identify when when we're not feeling great. Yeah. And that's been a really hard thing for me. And there's this crazy intersection between the work you do and, and the work I do. I, I was reading something, I guess in 2020, SAMHSA released some some data around Something to the effect that there's over five million veterans living in this country right now that have some type of behavioral health care issue, whether that's mental illness or or substance use disorder. And on top of that, something like, I don't know, 10% of them have gotten treatment. So so for me, I hear those numbers. And that's where people like you and me come into play because sometimes all we can give those folks if they don't have the resources is a community Yeah, is purpose Yeah, is a, just a reason to be alive one more day. Yeah. So it's, it's life is crazy.
0: Yeah. Well, and you know, and I think, I think about it a lot, just this idea that there's, there's two issues and you look at the work you're doing the work I'm doing it's access and stigma. Yeah. Right. And, and I do see change. That is the good thing. Like I do see change, but I think, Change is because of people like you that share your story. I'm very open with sharing that I was diagnosed with PTS after my brother was killed. And, you know, for a long time, I didn't share that with anyone. I wrote a book in 2019 and I'm like, I'm going to put it in the book. And I went back and forth about actually sharing that. And I'm like, you know what, why, why am I not sharing this? Why am I going to sit here and act like I'm the pillar of mental health and that I have no issues? I mean, people know the shit that I've gone through. Like if I'm not dealing with something, then that's crazy. Right. And so I did. And I think, again, I think people seeing that, you know, even people that are doing things at a high level right. and and we can still talk about that, right. you know, and and I talk about it. I, I deal with anxiety um, I still deal with it today, you know, and it's something that I, I relate to you when you say like, you're sitting home on a Friday night thinking like, man, you know, you've got like the social media persona, but that shit's fake. Right. I mean, it's, it's real, but it's, it doesn't show an ounce of the full story, right. you know?
1: Do you think about Travis every day? Is that something like you asked me? Like, yeah. It, yeah. Every day. Yeah.
0: Every single day. But that drives you a little bit, right? Every it drives day. me. Yeah. Yeah you know, my, I'm a little different where like your story and what happened to you is your greatest driver. And you wouldn't change that for a thing, right? right? Because it's made you who you are today. I would change everything to have him back, Right. right? Like I would throw every single, and I hate saying that because I know how many people have been affected by the work that we do, but selfishly, I would take it all back to have Travis here. And to be, he's here though. I know, but you know, I mean, I know, you know, but you know, to have him heading to the beach with me this weekend and hitting the Princeton, you know?
1: Amen. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's so heavy. The world knows when you're full of shit. Yeah. And that's like for us, like what you just talked about, if you wrote that book and, and you didn't put that in there, this would have been off.
0: Yeah.
1: I didn't really give it my all here. Yeah. And I'm thankful. And, and, and that probably comes from some of your experience. I know for me it does, right? Like I have one story, the truth, that's it. That's it. And if I just lean into that, like my story is my story. It's the truth. And I lived for many years trying, like I would give my power away, right? I give my power away to the girl that didn't like me or, The friend group that didn't want to welcome me or the boss that didn't you know love me or whatever it was and i'm just done giving my power away like i don't have to prove anything to anyone right and that and that's the thing for the kids when you go back and you talk to them that you try to instill in them because you know you look at you just look at the the world and what these kids have to deal with with all the shit it's it's scary yeah scary
0: Well, and I think, again, I put a lot out there in that book. I, you know, because if you look at my, if you look at my resume of accomplishments, you know, you'll, you'll see a lot, you know, and, and I ran a marathon six months after Travis was killed. And I want to talk to you about, you got into marathon running too. I'm going to encourage you to join our team for Marine Corps, but. um, When is Marine Corps? It's, I think the week (laughs) or it's, it's the end of October um but i ran a marathon you know in june Travis was killed in april 29th june 1st i started marathon training i had just had a child 10 months ago i hadn't run more than a mile in you know since i was in college and i gutted through training until i got to that marathon in october the night before the marathon i stood outside of the marriott in dc and smoked a half a pack of cigarettes. Like that's what I did because I was so terrified. And I remember standing there with my best friend and she's like, what are you doing? This seems very counterproductive. And I'm like, no, I have to do this right now. Like this is what's gonna get me through. And it did, I got through, I ran that marathon. It was ugly, It it was painful. It was, I crossed the finish line and said, I will never, ever, ever do this again but I came back around in 2019 and I did it the right way, you know? And so, um, but again, if you look at it, it's like, oh, this girl, she went out and she ran a marathon six months after her brother was killed. Like they don't know all the crap that went along with that, you know, getting to that point. Right. So, um, all right. That's so
1: real. I love that story.
0: I got to switch subjects because, you know, people would kill me if we didn't get in a little bit of the bachelorette and that experience. So, um, so you're, Sister and your mom yeah. sign you up or put your tape in for audition.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't talk about it a lot. I mean, I guess so. So what happened was I had seen the show literally like once uh-huh. with my ex-wife. I remember actually being dope sick, like lying <laughs> on the floor of our bedroom watching this horrible television show. <laughs> I'm just like, what is? what am I watching? You know, like, cause I'm 20, whatever you're I mean, this is all very confusing to me. Uh, and I think it was like the first season ever. And so, you know, I had known that my, my mom and sister, it's like the way that I go to Eagles games and yeah. like, they watch reality television. Yeah. So. And so I'm 36 years old living in New York. I'm single. And I think they're like behind the scenes plotting this, whatever. And so, yeah, it was the middle of COVID and uh, I got a call from LA And I just kind of went, I just kind of went with it. You know, I kept an open mind, like, like I try to do with anything in my life. Right. I think so many humans are programmed to like contempt prior to investigation, right. To making decisions before even doing the due diligence. And so I'm going to talk to these people. They seem like good people. They started to explain it to me. And I said, I think I can do this. I think I can step away from the business for a couple months. I think that, you know, I think we can, we can let this ride. So they basically like, let me know that I was going to, going to go on. And I, and I, and I look back at that experience and there's a lot that I'm proud of myself around that experience for, but the thing that it showed me is that like, I'm, I'm okay. Just the way I am. Yeah. You know, like I'm okay just the way I am, and and if I am just true to who Zach Clark is, nine times out of ten, I'm gonna have gonna have a good experience. So,
0: were you scared about going in into that kind of public? forum and and i mean you obviously had to approach it saying i'm going in saying this is my story right you weren't going to try to hide that or anything
1: no i i knew
0: and i'm sure that's maybe how they did they did they put your application in as such as like i'm sure i mean i
1: I never saw what they wrote i'm sure i i think the the lady that called me read like a little piece of it and i was like oh my god you know because it's like my my family like they Mm -hmm. love me so much and uh no, I've never and some people choose to be private about their journey. And that's their own like that's their own choice. Yeah. Everyone has a choice. But for me, I was so at that point, you know, I was eight or nine years sober. I, I was very comfortable with who I am. So just like I'm sitting here talking to you, yeah, like
0: that's how you went into it. Yeah,
1: that's how I went into it. And and if and the whole way that I live, whether it's dating or in friendships or whatever it is in life, if someone is gonna judge me for who I am. And most likely, I don't want that energy in my life anyway. Yeah. So that that's a very simple formula that I think a lot of people miss. So you crazy,
0: so you crazy. get on the Bachelor and you end up. I mean, is it called winning? I mean, do you win the Bachelor or Bachelorette? Excuse me, Bachelor. Yeah.
1: I mean, I don't think winning <laughs> feels right to me. You're the
0: last man standing.
1: I got engaged.
0: You got engaged. I got
1: engaged. I fell in love. I got engaged and uh you know, it just it 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 didn't work for whatever reason. Um, the relationship. Uh and it's it's hard. I haven't really talked about it much. But like I think the thing is that I that I that I say if, if I was to say anything about it, you know, like two really good people don't always make a, a really good relationship. Yeah. You know, and and so there's obviously just a ton of love um, all around for, for the whole thing. And it hasn't come without its challenges. I mean, there's definitely been some, some mental health stuff that's come from that. There's definitely been some moments in my life where I I say to myself, you know, am I being watched? Am I not being watched? These people know who I am. Do they not know who I am? It's a weird, right. it's a weird, I mean, it's a weird thing to kind of go from, you know kind of like nobody running my business doing my work doing my service work having my friend group going to the jersey shore to all of a sudden being launched into this you know into the public eye which has dwindled you know naturally over the last couple of years because i haven't like remained so in engaged with with like the show or whatever it was but i still i still have a lot of love for those people um no but like i, I was just, I remember one time I was getting in my car and there was a note on my windshield and it was like some, someone saw me park my car and said, like, they wanted, you know, I'm just like, okay, like, this is a lot, <laughs> like, who who else is watching me, here, yeah. you know, and so that's going to, that's going to you know, bring on some paranoia. And then the other thing that has, that has come from that is like being here with you. Like this would have never happened. You had no reason to, you know,
0: Well, Kelsey Kelsey would have, Kelsey spotted you on the beach, working out. You would have just been another guy on the beach doing the warrior workout with us. Right. Maybe
1: not. I mean, I
0: look,
1: I, I I saw the work that you guys were doing. Felt inspired. I saw, I mean, that's all it was. It was a sign out front of one of the gyms in Avalon. I was like, this is awesome you know, like they're bringing people together. And, and so that's one of the other things that my recovery has really given me is just yeah. kind of like the road to yes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We all say no way too much. So it was a simple thing of like, I'm going to go to this workout yeah, and, and, you know, here we are. And, and, and that's just kind of a life a life lesson that was bestowed upon me from my father kind of said, take every meeting, say yes, show up. It's really hard to bet against someone that shows up, and I'll fucking I'll show up.
0: I love that, <laughs> and I think that's so true. I do think we come from like a place, like a lot of people come from that place of no. Yeah, I'm 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 the same way. Like I'll give everything a shot. I'll show up at anything. I'll you know because I have seen so many incredible opportunities happen when I least expected it. Yeah, right. And so many amazing things happen for our organization at meetings that I very easily could have been like. Eh. You know,
1: and so well, even just this, like you knowing what you do and being like, okay, reality television, like, and then you kind of start to peel back the layers at the end, you're like, Oh, this person actually has something to offer the yeah. world. Like if you would have just judged me on like the way that the world most of the world sees me, you might not have gotten to this
0: point. One hundred percent You know, I mean, again, Kelsey said that guy's the bachelorette. I'm like, that's cool. And then I started following you. I'm like, oh, wow, there's a lot here. yeah. And uh, he would be a great guest. Oh, by the way, he's a huge Philly sports fan. Yeah, like, yeah, we yeah. got to get him on. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about marathons. How many marathons have you run? 12. 12 marathons.
1: 12, yeah, I've done 12. All I, New York? No, I've done, I did London twice. Okay. I did Boston and I did, I just, my most recent one is Nashville. And then I did eight. New York's and New York, the story behind New York is I showed up in New York city. One of the years it was canceled uh, because Sandy like blew it out. And then then I, I watched, I guess the next year and I sat there and watched 50,000 people from all walks of life running through New York city. I said, this is the most powerful shit I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. How do I, you know, do that?
0: Were you a runner before? No.
1: No. I mean, when I showed up in treatment, I was <laughs> very overweight. Uh, and so I started kind of moving and running in treatment and I, and I kept with that. And so when people ask me, how do you start running? I say, go out 10 minutes and get back 10 minutes, whether yeah. you're walking, running, jogging, however it is, just, if you get out, you got to get home, yeah. you know? So, so true. That's kind of what I was doing. And then I watched a marathon. I said, I want to do this. So I reached out to some people and found a a, a foundation that supported uh people like myself Mm -hmm. and hopped on with them and ran ran with them for about five years six years and then got to a place where i basically said to them like guys i'm kind of doing all your work let's work something out here yeah and so i was able to acquire that nonprofit, and uh which is now the release recovery foundation and we have 100 bibs for this year's new york city marathon so it's just like it's it's and and running has has saved my life like legitimately um and that's just another thing like i hated running i was the guy that said i hate running i can't run i can't run you know and, and
0: everybody says they can't run right well it's funny because i talk a lot about and another thing i shared very open so my dad's a retired marine corps colonel okay and everything you think about a marine corps colonel my dad was growing up okay he's gotten a lot softer uh now but you know i grew up with a marine corps father and so you know when we would talk about like ailments of the mind like anything that you were dealing with in your head could be dealt with dealt with by going for a run right. so like if i wasn't feeling well if i you know if i said dad i'm feeling depressed or i'm i'm sad whatever whatever emotion i was feeling my dad would be like go for a run and i was super resentful of that statement, like, well, you're just not physically active. And I would be super resentful of that reaction from him. And it was really after Travis died that there were so many of us that were just like, we're going to start training for this marathon that all of a sudden it like clicked for me. And I understood like what he meant. Now there's more to mental, you know, mental illness than physical activity. But I also started to realize what a huge role plays in your mental health. Well, it's our society.
1: And I'll talk to anyone about this is over medicated, right? Right. So it's, you go into a therapy appointment or you go meet with someone or you're working with a coach of some sort. And there's the option of, Hey, commit to like a physical fitness program. That's nowhere. Or take this pill. It's like, give mean, the pill, right. 10 out of 10
0: times, but you're not even getting that option. Most of the time they're not saying, well, you know what, if you start to become more physically active, they're saying, well, you know, give you some Lexapro and then come back to me in you know, 90 days and we'll see where you are. And so I started to realize like, oh, this is like, I lost myself training for that marathon, like completely lost myself in just putting one foot in front of the other. And again, it was very ugly, um, but I got through it and I came back in 2019 and I was like, you know what, like I, I need redemption for the way I felt like just, it-, it was just the way I did it. And so in 2019, I rocked the marathon with, uh, 17 pounds in a rucksack. Yeah. And so, and you I know these people go rock, do you know them? Well, I rucked it with the founder of go rock. Okay. Yeah. We're doing an event with them in,
1: in October in New York. Like we're going to rock over. It's like, it's, so it's substance. So like,
0: oh, we should well, yeah. yeah, 100%. So Jason McCarthy, the okay. CEO, founder of go rock. Uh, was like, he, he showed up in Atlanta. I was in Georgia for something. And he brought me my first rucksack and he was like, let's go for a ruck. And so we rucked around a lake and then he's like, let's ruck the marathon. And I'm like, there's no way. Like, there's absolutely no way. But I started training with this rucksack. I would stick a 10-pound plate in it. Oh. And I finished that marathon. I felt like a million bucks when I crossed the finish line. I finished that marathon faster, faster yeah. than when I ran in 2007. Did. And it was. And the last two miles, I was dying. And Jason was like, we're going to run to that. We're going to run to that lamp street post. And yeah. then we're going to stop and we can walk. And he that's how I got through the last two miles, but I crossed that finish line and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And so, you know, I see the power in everything that physical activity brings. So I love that that you've incorporated that into your recovery. Well, it's just, I mean, look, when you
1: enter into recovery from depression or substance use disorder or, or whatever it might be and you're down, right? It's because my drugs, my medicine is taken away from me. The thing that was making the dopamine in my brain light up and feel good and feel happy is now gone. Yeah. The runner's high is not a bullshit thing. That's a a real thing. thing. And it's a lot healthier and it's a lot safer. And so I have found through running and I I do my best thinking when I, I mean, there's there's so many benefits to it and I can eat kind of what I want when (laughs) when I'm running, you know? So it's like, there's there's that side of it too but no i i mean like even this year uh in january i was in a jackpot like i just wasn't feeling it kind of like that seasonal depression kind of feeling lost and i said to myself what what can i do and the easiest thing to decide to do was to run a marathon and actually train for it like really train right get a coach do the things have an accountability partner and i ran like a 20 minute pr in nashville in april because i just i committed to it, i did the work and there's nothing like to your point there's nothing better and crossing that finish line and feeling like, oh, I actually earned this shit. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. I always say the marathon, the, the, like that day is the reward for everything yeah, you put in le- leading up to it. Yeah. So, okay. What is one thing that you want people to know about addiction?
1: So I'm going to answer in two parts. Okay. I want, I want the people, that are struggling know that recovery is possible and recovery is not defined by hanging out in a church basement or uh, your life being over. It's actually really not about giving up the drugs and the alcohol. alcohol. It's about what you get back, the relationships, the love, the sense of self self-worth. So there's hope. I want the people that are struggling to know that there's hope because during my most hopeless days, there was not anyone telling me that like this is going to be okay. It just wasn't. For the people that aren't struggling, I want them to know that people who are in recovery are the coolest, baddest, strongest, smartest motherfuckers that you're going to meet. And so, like, to honor that and to honor that our country is really struggling right now with mental health, struggling with substance use disorder. And even if it hasn't touched you yet, because it will, um, to be an ally, to be a friend, to be open minded, to not like the reason I say heroin and crack and, and talk openly about the drugs that I use, because it's the same, it's all the same shit, whether it's a beer or a joint or a line of Coke it's just me trying to escape. And so trying to destigmatize, you know, what that means to the masses. Um, and there's a lot of work to be done.
0: Do you have, are are most of your friends sober? No, no,
1: no. I mean, so my, my best friends in life are the guys that I went to Hattonville high school with. Like we're still thick as thieves. We do, we're down to one trip a year. We do a fantasy football trip because everyone's married with kids. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, they laugh at me because I'm, whatever, like 39 and single living in New York and they all have like 10, eight and six year olds. (laughs) You guys are going to be out of the woods. I'm going to not be married yet. Uh, So there's that. And then I have, you know, I have like a crew in New York that's not sober. And then I have, yeah, I have, I have my, my guys that are sober and, and I don't, I don't really think of it that way. And those worlds have all intertwined just by, by nature of what we do. But like, I, there's nowhere in this world that I can't go and feel comfortable.
0: You're just living your life. Yeah,
1: that's it. I mean, you're going to find me in a strip club at three o'clock on a Saturday. No, but you know, it's like <laughs> very comfortable in my skin. I love it.
0: Um, I always end every episode asking my guests what a resilient life looks like for them.
1: Such a great word. That's a great word. I'm so happy I met you. We're here. We're talking. Uh, I think a resilient life is just one that you're proud of, you know, that's what it means to me. Like I'm, 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 I'm proud of myself. I'm proud of the life I've built. And one of the things that I've really leaned into at some point was just this idea of keep going. And I didn't even realize that I would end, end like early in sobriety or when I started to do this work, that would end a lot of phone calls and conversations. Say, hey dude, keep going. You know, just to like, keep going. And at the end of the day, it's really simple. It's hard, but it's really simple. If we, for me, I'll, I'll keep it on me. Like if I just keep going, chances are I'm going to get to a place where I'm proud of the life that I that I get to live. And, you know, it's conversations like this that, that help me keep going because I know this is going to change the world just a little bit. I love it. Yeah. Keep going. What about you? What does it? Has anyone asked you?
0: Oh my God! Well, I I I wrote a whole book on it. Okay, well I'll read the book. <laughs> I'll answer. I'll read the book. I'll have homework. There you go, Zach. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank it's been the, awesome.
1: This for this for uh, Grunek sick. Thank you. We got some gear for you. Thank
0: you. Thanks.